0: Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 27, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios out here in Oakland, California. And let me tell you, we got a big one for you, and we're so grateful you're tuning in. life podcast and it's a doozy let me tell you appreciate everyone checking in after episode 26 with ryan jalbert of the motet thanks to ryan for coming on the show I want to shout out our good friends at nugs.net now nugs.net's been in the game of online music sharing distribution broadcasting streaming since the beginning, and their uh, visionary uh, at the head of Nugs.net is a fellow named Brad Searling, and uh, just a really fascinating dude who has built uh, just a wonderful enterprise with what Nugs.net. Of course, uh, you can get a gazillion bands live shows through subscribing to their service. They are behind what broadcasts live fish. Uh, They do a number of free streams on the net on a weekly basis. And, uh, yeah, just really uh, awesome stewards of the culture in uh, really forward-thinking ways, delivering the music and the art and the experience to you uh, through technology. And uh, an appreciation for what got us here. And you can check out Brad on an amazing episode of Under the Scales podcast with Tom Marshall, which brings me to the uh, Nugs.net release their top podcasts in the jam band world, if you will, top jam band podcasts. And they were kind enough to include the Up Full Life podcast. So you can check that out on Nugs.net's website and in their newsletter. I put it on our socials. And it was just a real honor and it touched my soul to be received in such a way. And I know I'm kind of... <laughs> hard on the quote-unquote jam bands but uh, obviously that's the culture that made me i'm a deadhead i love the fish and i uh, worked for jam Bass for years i'm with live for live music currently so i wear it as a badge of honor and uh, as adam shmeen Smirnov said on this very show the term jam band speaks a lot more to the audience and the community that supports the music than to a genre or style of music being performed on stage. And I am inclined to agree and tip my hat to Shmeans for that wisdom. And with that, we'll wrap up this, uh, this thank you to nugs.net. So check them out. And, uh, I would advise if you have the means to subscribe because, uh, they offer a fantastic service and uh, really just awesome folks over there at nugs.net. You just heard the Black Crows feeling all right from the joint at the Hard Rock in Vegas back in uh, December of 96. And now we're going to hop, skip, and jump to the High is the Moon tour. A moment to shout out the winner of last episode's contest for VI Jam down there in the Virgin Islands, St. John. And the winner is Lauren Strickland. Lauren Strickland was one of about a dozen folks to enter the contest, and uh, she lives down there. She's going to go to the show, she's going to bring her husband, Tucker. So shout out to the Stricklands, and for everyone who uh, supported that uh, sponsored contest from VI Jam and my man Mo Angelo down there. And uh, stay tuned for more collaborations between he and I because go way back, Swanee fam, bringing it full circle. And uh, want to let folks know real quick some cool shit that's happened since... Uh, I last put an episode out. Did a deep, deep dive on one of my probably my all time favorite album, D'Angelo Voodoo. 20 years ago it came out, January 25th, 2000. So I did a really deep dive, as did many uh, music publications, but uh, could not uh, deny the opportunity to go there. So check that out on upfullife.com. It's called My Redeemer, a love letter to D'Angelo for 20 years of voodoo. Also, Checked out a uh, Atlanta hip-hop group called Earth Gang from the Spillage Village Collective and Dreamville Squad, if you will. They came through with Mick Jenkins. They played the Fillmore and SF, so uh, hit the show, did a quick story. You can find that on Up for Life and Live For Live Music. As you can, my interview with New Orleans' own vinyl DJ, the queen of rare groove herself, DJ Soul Sister. So, uh, yeah, did a sweet interview with her on the phone in advance of her appearance at denver comes alive shout out to kunj and sarah and everyone at live for live music for the success of denver comes alive's first annual went down last week the mission ballroom brand new venue out there and they crushed it so check out uh the different video footage that's uh, coming out from that stream, because it's a pretty fantastic event. always like to shout out the fam at Live For Live Music. And uh, just want to send this episode out to one of my biggest inspirations, and that's a fellow named Dennis Cook. Dennis Cook was my editor at Jambase for years. He's one of the foremost, probably the foremost Black Crow's historical scholar and writer. I would liken his relationship and perspective to... To the crows to my own with lettuce um he's a friend to the band for years he's written liner notes for them uh i met him through the black crows online community and like i said he's one of, i put him next to like david Fricky and hunter s thompson as like the most influential writers of my life um, he inspired me to do this he showed me how to get inside the music he remains a trusted and uh dear friend and colleague and though he's not as active as a writer as he once was, he uh, still from time to time puts pen to paper and uh, will bust out some really wonderful stuff. So I wanted to send this episode out to my man Dennis Cook down there in Santa Cruz. You know he's he's still doing the damn thing, you know he struggles with some depression and he's been very open about that on social media and that's kind of given me a greater understanding of what that's all about too and uh, he also has an autistic son that he's a full-time uh, stay-at-home dad too so dennis uh if you're out there listening i love you your words have gone so deep and so far into so many of our lives the musicians themselves the readers fans and of course writers like myself I still dig up your stuff when I'm looking for inspiration or for another way to get inside the music. And naturally, on a day like today, when I am welcoming the great Steve Gorman, founder and ex-drummer of the Black Crows, to uh, this show, um, I just wanted to take a few minutes and tell the world, and you, how much you influence me. And how much you mean to so many of us as a writer and just as a dude. So, I don't know if you listen to the show, but if you hear this, I love you. And uh, with that, I'm going to play a little bit more Crows here. This is from the March of 95 Beacon Theater run. Legendary uh, run of shows with the Crows. One of the many times they almost broke up. You know, etc. Cr- uh Steve Gorman, the reason that he uh, is coming on the show and the reason that he invited me to host this book talk uh, was because he wrote a book about the Black Crows called Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows, A Memoir, and what you're about to hear is a sit down with me and Steve in a live audience at Book Passage at the San Francisco Ferry Building in san francisco it happened uh on the day of the afc championship or afc and nfc championship games With steve as a diehard titans fan they lost literally like 10 minutes before we sat down to do this you'll hear him joke about it a little bit in the beginning um i think i want to play a little bit of crows here and then i'm going to come back and set the stage for the interview Steve and I sat down with this live studio audience, Uh, if you will. It wasn't a studio, it was a bookstore, but just came out that way. Anyway, uh, it was an honor and a privilege on a level that I have not the words for this dude to hit me up and be like, hey, would you come and interview me and host my book talk? Now, it's a relatively innocuous request, and it was only like 25-ish people that arrived, and sat down and maybe you know two-thirds of them stayed for the whole thing nonetheless this is fucking Steve Gorman drummer of the Black Crows who just wrote this like atomic bomb of a rock and roll memoir it's on the Mount Rushmore of any that I've ever read and I'm not just saying this because he asked me to do this he might have asked me to do this because I felt this way about the book and wasn't shy about it on social media now it's a controversial book. It leaves a uh, few stones unturned. Uh, it, he is very, very frank. And as he said, he wants to correct the false narratives that were parroted to the fans for so many years. And with that, a lot of the magic, a lot of the mystic, a lot of the just that, that thing that makes the music so special and so authentic to us. A little bit of that sheen comes off with this book and we discussed that among a number of other topics now i could i didn't really get to conduct quote my interview i hope to have steve on the show like for real for real one day this was for his book and he kind of just ran with it i just kind of fed him some story ideas and some questions and he answered them and took them where he saw fit We did like 40 minutes just me and him i opened it up to some questions from the audience and then i would sort of interject after those questions went to certain places that i had other questions for so i i was super prepared for this i was very nervous uh all the things um it was just such a honestly life highlight to just do this forget the podcast or the video that you'll see on youtube to just sit down with fucking Steve Gorman and talk about his career and talk. And you know, I'm a writer and we're talking about his book and how he created this document of rock and roll history and say what you will about the crows. And now with this book and what's in there, you can talk a lot of shit. But at the end of the day, the music does the loudest and longest and most profound talking. And, and you really no amount of, of, Skeletons in the proverbial closet can take that away. Um, So I want to just prep everyone. The sound is not ideal. We had initially planned to record it with microphones, and Steve's just bombastic baritone voice need not amplification. So uh, you're hearing us in a sort of cavernous bookstore. You'll hear some folks moving around some tables and such. I did the best I could. In essence to sort of uh, tweak it and tighten it up and noise reduction etc and I hope that uh, you guys can get past a little bit of the sound imperfections just to absorb the gems and jewels that Steve Gorman blesses us with for roughly an hour 20 now he's been on a gang of podcasts including You know, Brian Koppelman's show and uh, Let There Be Talk with Dean Del Rey. Um, I highly recommend State of Amorica, especially Steve's episode. But this is my episode and your episode and the Upful Life's episode and SF Book Passage episode. So we're going to defer back to that Beacon Theater show and hear Mark Ford and Chris Robinson sing us back home for a few moments. And then I'm gonna play the interview with Steve Gorman founder ex drummer of the Black crows Does it to your
1: mind? Well, why don't you let it go why don't you let it go? so where you, well, you can bring it to me.
0: Everybody coming out
2: today on a big football day, especially Steve here. It's an honor it's and a privilege. A shitty football day. As, as a Titans fan, so hoping that these, uh, your team would pull it through. So you'd be in a festive mood, but nonetheless, we're happy that you're here. Listen, if it was a close game, I wouldn't be here. So, thank the Chiefs for this happening
3: on time.
2: I'm not going to use this. You don't need it unless I need it. Right on. Well, uh, we all know uh, the occasion is uh, your memoir, hard to handle. Life and Death of the Black Crows, a memoir. And uh, I got to say, I read it in one seven hour sitting. I read it again. I listened to the audiobook. It's a fascinating tale. I find the fifth time through is when it really connects. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, I had to let it all sink in. You know, some of us I understand. Nonetheless, uh, grateful for you to sit down with us, talk with us today. And there's so much in the book that, that we could discuss, and I just try to pick out a few of my favorite passages. Uh, one sure. of the things that uh, you start off talking about a little bit is that uh, you were an air drummer for the first 10 years of your career and you didn't buy a drum set till you were in your early 20s. Mm-hmm. Three months later, you're in the studio recording an album that's going to go sell millions of copies. You're all over MTV. You're in well, concert. three months later, I was recording
3: a demo that led to that. It was two years before we made the record, so
2: well, it wasn't that fast. Nonetheless, it was pretty instant success. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Well, how was that a, a gift and a curse in your career to have it all so fast, so soon? Uh, um, well, the drumming part was, it was great that I didn't start till I was
3: so late, because I spent so much time thinking about it, and I always felt like I didn't have time to fuck up. I had to do it, then, you know, I was behind the eight ball. Like at 21 to start playing drums, I thought, like, I'm i am so late to the dance, I can't screw anything up. So I was sort of obsessed with not being great, but just not sucking. I mean, that was really my, my goal, so, but the, and that, that played a large part of why I fit in with band came together pretty quickly because i was just made sure not to screw anything up like it's always going to be at least solid and that helped with that and then as far as for the band you know it's funny because it didn't feel like it went quickly Those three years from buying the kit to the record coming out they felt like 30 years what would feel like now you know because every every week every day wondering about you know i wonder what's going to happen for lunch today you know i mean no one has a nickel and you're just Having a lot of fun, but but not also seeing any path, you know, developing it first. And we had a lot of frustrating things happen, like any local band does. And plus, we sucked. I mean, I thought we had this great chemistry, and I felt like we were. I used to say we were the, the worst band in Atlanta and the best band in the world, and I thought both those things were very true, because every band in the Atlanta scene in the late '80s was better than Mr. Rose Garden. But but I could just see that we had something they didn't, and maybe that was just blind arrogance, but. But it was re- whatever it was, it was there. Right. And so all that stuff led to, but then as far as the first record being successful or all that too fat yeah, I mean, that's a classic story. If you just lose perspective pretty quick, like the first time out, you, you have such
2: a big, a big hit. Right, and, and it had a long life of that record. You toured for a long time behind it. There were lots of videos behind it. Yeah.
1: It
2: was a different day and age. What, what was that experience like just becoming... Uh, a rock band that everyone would point you out in the mall and, and know who you were and rubbing <clears throat> shoulders with Aerosmith and Arenas? Um, I mean at the time
3: it was, it made sense, you know, it, it, it not, nothing happened to, I mean I always look at like Nirvana, they went from, they put their record out and it was number one like in three weeks, you know what I mean? And we had a year before our record, back then, you know, on Platinum, which that's unbelievable My records now, but back then a lot of bands did that have one shot at it, and a lot of bands sold on the records, it just sounds so weird to say now, but but it took a year to do that, and we were, it's a blessing and a curse, so self-absorbed at all times, we were just really trying to be a great band, you know, we just felt like we had made a record that we had to catch up to and be as good as, and so we really, to our credit, we, we focused on being a really great live band more than anything else, and so by the time it was obvious that it was a big hit and all that, we just... You know, we we, as excited as we probably all were, we never admitted it or even shared it with ourselves. We just stayed focused on, well, you know, we were really chasing like you know the ghost of the seventy two
2: Stones more than wondering what other bands of our own. We didn't care about our (coughs) peers, you know. We were were sort of was pretty insular mindset. And you had stated that you know even though you were kind of coming from the Stones mold, if you will, REM was the band that really turned you on. Yes. Well, for me, that's the band that made me want to play music, you know, like, I,
3: I mean, it's, it sounds like I'm knocking them, but I first saw R.E.M. at, I was in 11th grade, and I saw them at the Vanderbilt University Student Center, and I, first time, I'd seen some arena shows, but I hadn't, you know, I wasn't all enough to go to clubs yet, I didn't see bands in small rooms, and the first time I, it was, you know, not that much bigger than this room, and it was the first time I realized, like, oh, you, oh, you just start here, like, you just, and they weren't that great, they were cool and very unique, but I could tell, well they're not like great you know they just have a vibe but it's not like they were playing crazy things you know just it just sort of and then when i started seeing bands at clubs it all fell in like oh you just get some friends and try to figure this out and see if it works uh, but that was but but i was so into them early on that, and and everything they their interviews everything i knew about them it just made sense to me and made me think yeah i need to do this you know i mean i always wanted to do it but i just didn't see a path because how do you grow up a Beatles fan and think, I'm gonna do that. I mean, to me, in, in a small town in Kentucky, it just didn't make sense. Like, I would talk about playing in a band, and my friends would just look at me and go, okay, sure, yeah, whatever, dude. You know,
2: nobody, would, I didn't have anybody that wanted to do it. So you just basically played the one Bee Gees record that you had to, and uh, brothers gave you some Beatles records, and then- That was won. early on, yeah, yeah. So I mean, Ringo I know was, was the guy. Oh yeah, always still. Okay. Talk a little bit about, what, what was it about Ringo Starr, the drummer, or the Beatles that, that you know, connected with you, young Steve, who didn't have anyone to share it with? Uh, well, they have good songs, they call me crazy,
3: um, his swing, it's just his feel, you know, the drummer, my favorite drummers all just have a, a unique swing, you know, they have their own sense of time, and he always served the song, and I mean, I still listen to Beatles records and still think, how oh, in the hell is he doing that, you know, the better, the better I got, the better he got, you know what I mean, like, I, we started off, in, you know, like, um, it's, it's just like anything else. I mean, I, a lot of musicians are that way, but he was my first guy that I just jumped on. And the more you learn about making records, the more you learn about writing songs, the more you learn about everything, the Beatles just got better and better and better. And I was like, oh, this is weird. I kept thinking I was going to f- f- crack the code, and it's like, no, they just keep eluding. And, it's cool. Other bands are that way too. you know, Little Feet, you know, the more you dig in and start really listening, you're just going, oh, fuck it, how did this, you yeah. know? And so that, that's. That's a great place to be, though, because there's not really a finish line in music. You just keep trying to learn and learn and learn, and then one day you die.
2: I feel like your records, a lot of them, you know, have that kind of replay value, right? and mm-hmm. sort of diamonds in the rough that you discover years and years and years later listening to. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, that's what you we're know, that's that's going here. for, yeah. And speaking of Ringo, I, I know talked a little bit about, not in the book, but it's on the podcast, we had an opportunity to play music with Ringo and, and almost missed the chance, Oh, yeah, yeah. Swing
3: How did that go? Um, just this past summer, Ringo was touring. I live in Nashville and uh, went to see him. And I know his his drummer, Greg Bissonette, and I I know Ringo, which is weird to say, but you know we're buddies. And so <laughs> I went to see the show, and I brought my son down, and he met him, and it was really kind of cool for him. And and um, and they always Ringo's shows always ended with a little help from my friends, and uh. And he used to have drummers get up and sit in with the band. Like Ringo has his kit, and then he goes up front and sings. And so then his kit's always empty when he's up front. But for a little of my friends, he used to ask people sit in. Like five years ago, I don't know who it was, but someone got up there and just blew it, just screwed the song up. And then Ringo said, no more drummers. So it's off. They don't do that anymore. And I've known that for years. So I went to the show not thinking anything about it. And we were talking before the show, quick chat in the hallway. And as he was walking to the stage, he said over his shoulder something like, bub, 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 hey, you know, and I didn't really hear him because I'm half deaf and I laughed and said something. It was just all whatever banter. And, and my son and I go out and we watch the show. And it was a great gig. And the next morning I get up and and, and his drummer, Greg, and then Steve Luke the guitar player, they both texted and they were like, dude, where were you? For a little help from my friends. I'm, I'm reading texts and I'm like, what are you talking about? And they said, Ringo asked you to sit in. And I was staring at my phone. And I was like, I called Greg and I go, I called Greg and I go, well, What are you, why are you doing this to me? And he goes, dude, that's what he said. He said, hop up for a little help and keep your eye on Greg. And I heard him say something about Greg and I remember saying, like, oh, I never turned my back on Greg. I don't trust that. You know, we're like, I thought it was all just shtick. And I just, and I was staring at the phone and he goes, yeah, we got off stage and Ringo goes, whoa. I've been snubbed, and I was like, I was like, you know, pa- blind panic, and, um, and I just was, de- I mean, I was really, it was a Friday, and it just, it really upset me, like, I couldn't shake it all day, because, you know, I'm just like, well, that's not going to happen again, that would have been pretty awesome to do once in my life, you know, and, and, um, and so that was on a Friday, and then the following Wednesday, I had to go to Philadelphia for the day, that for I have a radio show and I was meeting these guys with the network and we we're putting stuff together and they were in Philly so I was flying to Philly and I uh, I have a buddy up there who is a promoter a Live Nation promoter and I just texted him I said hey I'm in town Wednesday night you got any gigs and he just wrote back yeah Ringo and I was like what the fuck? and so then I I told Gray I said hey I'm coming to the show don't have to I'm not trying to barge in again but I am going to be there again you know and I walked in the door in Philly in the back door and uh I, I got to the stage door and I walked in and right away his tour manager goes upstairs let's go and he takes me up to Ringo's dressing room and I walk in and the first thing he says is oh <laughs> 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 and, uh, and I've known Ringo for a long time uh, but we've never had a lot of one-on-one time because not too many people do with him it's always an event or it's a place or you hanging at dinner or whatever. And we just sat in his dressing room for a while, and he started, it, first time, it was the longest I've ever had with him, like, one-on-one. And he was telling me all these fucking crazy Bonzo and like Keith Moon stories, and I'm just sitting there, like, you know, my brain melting. And at the very end, he goes, so, are you going to come up again tonight, or are you going to snub me again? You know, and I'm just like, can't believe Ringo's breaking my balls. And I said, no, I will be there. And he goes, well, do you know the song Photograph? And I said... Yeah, that's the first 45 I ever bought with my own money. And he goes, Well, when you hear that one, come up to stage left, and then we'll get up and we'll do the song. And I was like, Cool, I can do that. And then, uh, and so it was great. And he said, All right, we'll see you after. You know, I'll see you up there. And have fun. You know, don't ruin it for everybody. You know, and I said, Great. So we, I, I left. And I was really excited and I was thrilled I got to redeem myself. But then when photographs started, I was on the side of the stage and I started having like an anxiety attack. I really was like, I'm gonna get up and play Ringo's drums with Ringo. I mean, it was freaking me out. Like this is this goes back to me at six, like hearing tickets arrive for the first time and this being my lifelong guy. And it's one thing to it's one thing to meet him and hang out with him, but to play and be on his stage, I mean that was a whole different thing. So it was I was literally standing there going like, and his tech came over to hand me some steaks, and he's like, you cool? And I was like, man, I'm kind of freaking out. I was really surprised by that. And I was losing my mind until I got up there. And once I sat the kid, it was like, oh, okay. This, this is the easy part. It was the buildup. But we played the song, and I didn't ruin it, and I, you know, it was all good. Kind of went by in a blur, and so now I can die.
1: Glad
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you got the, yeah. the money because I that would have been It was a long weekend. Wondering if
2: he was going to ever talk to me again. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of shows played, obviously, with the Crows, and a lot of beers drank, as you noted in the book. And I was curious, how did you go about recounting with such detail these uh, adventures and journeys around the world with the band and all these different cities, who came and went? How, how do you go back and It's get a off? curse. <laughs> I, I just remember
3: everything. I mean, I don't, I don't have a photographic memory. I don't think. I mean, I know people that do, and and I don't remember that kind of detail. But I have, as things were going along, there were always just significant moments, good, bad, and in the middle of everything that were always just they just found their way in. You know, and I, I mean, I I I wrote um, about three times what the book is, and the whole time I was writing it, all I thought was I'm leaving so much out. Like I just kept saying, like God, this, is and it's like to to dive back in. I kept finding that, like, if I was telling a story, there's a significant. Thing. I, I, the way I saw it in my head, I'd be writing about something, and my memory—it's like you walk into a room and there's ten doors, and I'm like, oh shit! Well, which one do I open? And then you go down, and then there's ten more doors, and it's like everything that comes back leads farther, deeper into the story. You know, like I can remember what everybody's wearing, what people were eating, and, you know, what it smelled like for a lot, of, you know, all that stuff, and it's weird. It's just, you know, it was. It's kind of exhausting. There were days when I would finish writing. and just, just was like dead. You know, I couldn't even think for two straight days. But I, I enjoyed it. I liked just being in a zone where there's no distractions. But uh, yeah, I've just always, I've had that kind of memory. So that's just what it is. Yeah, well, it Until my kids were born. It's gotten a little fuzzy. Yeah, yeah. that, 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 that shot, just a few years in the early, you know, 2000 and 2005 is a bit of a blur. But uh, once they could walk and talk on their own, I started, you know, I could
1: check back into the real world. The irony there
2: is those were the years you were not active with the girls. <laughs> For the most part, yeah. Interesting. Um, you know, when you moved on to the second album, uh, Southern Harmony Music companion, timeless record, addition uh, of two essential members to the band,
1: mm-hmm.
2: the, the late great Ed Harsh on the piano and keys yep. and Mark Ford on guitar, uh, you dedicate a whole chapter to that, and uh, a lot of really touching profiles of all the band members, Mark um, included. What was the difference? What was the what ratcheted things up the notch when those guys got? In the band? Well, the, the the biggest difference,
3: and it's great, because this is not a it's not to take away anything from them. The biggest difference from the first album to the second is the rest of us. It's the four guys that were there for both. Because the difference from us. From Drake Shake Money Maker Southern Harmony is, is unquantifiable. Like, we went from being a band that had a good sense of what we were trying to be and going way beyond that on the road for two years and becoming the band that could make Southern Harmony. And then Ed joined halfway through that tour, and I mean, he was like this, you know, he was like a, this guy with a carrot across the room at all times, like, hey, look what I'm doing. And we gravitated and ch- tried to catch up and get to his level. But Ed was, all, all, Ed was always great. I mean, he was already there, you know what I mean? And so he played a huge part in getting us there. But the biggest difference in the band is just our confidence, those basic tracks, like the way that album was made um, in a weird, you know, like Ed and Mark were hugely important in that, but I mean, they showed up fully formed, you know, if that makes sense. The work was the rest of us who, were, who weren't who were anywhere near that when we started off for Shake the But that said, that band had those two guys jump in and join us, and then that was just like pouring, you know, jet fuel onto a raging fire. I mean, you know, the, the, it's kind of weird to talk about because it's so self-evident, you know, what Mark brought to the band. I mean, Ed was already, had already been there for a year, but then Mark just stepped in, and it just was like this, he just, you know, I don't know, every hole in the boat, he just fixed it, or whatever you want to say, any analogy, he was just, he took everything and just made it better. You know, he took any, any. And he walked in the first day to play with us, and, and a lot of the songs were already written. We were already playing them, and it was like, "Hey, what do you hear here?" And like, as soon as he started playing, it just everything just went up to another level. And it, and it was like those periods of growth. There was no sliding back. Like he just put it to a place where, from that moment forward, the, our worst day, we were still going to be a pretty damn good. You know, and so, and and then by the time we were touring on that record, then the ability, his influence and how the band worked in arranging and writing and just all those things, then it really showed itself. But for the making of Southern Harmony, it was more like he was this cherry on top, Mark was. And then he, over the course of that tour, then I feel he blended in and really, then we really
1: got the full
2: impact of what he was able to get with the band. And you've gone on record to say that 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 tour the, the Southern Army. as the moon in that era it was, it was the strongest. The apex of the Black girls. I think it was the most cohesive,
3: you know. I, I, but but I think the same thing. I think it, I think we had nights in two thousand ten where the band was as cohesive as it could be. You know, it's a very different band, but it was on the same page. And I think that there was just that there's that thing on the way up when everything connects and clicks. And the Southern Army tour was that for us. That was where It was all and it wasn't obvious at the time because again, you're always looking to the next place. But looking back, you know, and I, th- I think I think anywhere from 92 to 96 is really the you could take any of those and go, That's kind of hard to beat. But that was when it was all just like we were still going out every night, like to just let's go kill this thing, let's and we were all together. Like there was this sense of we were all trying to get to the same place every night, and it was never quite like that again. I mean, we still had great results, but I'm just totally speaking internally and the unspoken, you know, communication between everybody was, by 93,
2: it was was never that, that fluid, I should say, I guess. Yeah, I was 15, I saw my first show at the Tower Theater in Philly in 93, on that tour, probably why I'm sitting next to you today. Okay, you you know. And I think the, the book is really your opportunity to explain all the head scratchers, all the what the hell's, all the. Some almost, of
4: them. I mean,
2: you've you talked about it being closure. The book has been closure for yourself. It's been closure for people. Are, um, for the band I, I think.
3: Version. I think it's. It's been a lot of other people
2: have said that word to me. I, I don't
3: feel like it was to me because I feel like I'd already. I'm already there. I, I, the book wasn't a. Wasn't a cathartic. <laughs> not have days where I wrote. And I closed the laptop, and it was like, oh, it's. The, I've already, I've already gone through all that. You know, I've already had therapy, and I've already been processing this in real time, and then ever since. You know, so it was more just the the grind of getting it all out, and and and, and putting it down in the way that that flowed in the way I see it and felt it, and so. Um, but I've been, but but for so many other people, other guys in the band and crew members and management, all these other people, have, that have contacted me, um, that's a word that they're using all the time, you know, because it is, it was a, um, I think not, no one ever left the experience of being in the band in a great place. Like no one ever walked away okay. like that was great, you know, it just <laughs> didn't happen. It's, there's not one person that could say that. People left feeling okay, but not great. <laughs> And there's only a few of those people, and so for everybody that's been looking back and in their own life trying to make sense of it, it's been a pretty. It can be. It's not overstating it to say it's really traumatic for some people, but it's certainly been difficult. And so, it's been really rewarding for me to know that it touched everyone. I mean, to me, it's such a personal book. I mean, it's a, the, the whole book's about me. I mean, you know, in a way, it's like this is me responding a lot of times very poorly, or you know ways that I would have never could imagine acting now. You know what I mean? It's like, this is all about, I'm in this situation and here's the cast of characters, but this is my path, you know, and so but I, so I was surprised that so many other people related and got, you know, that got people that were in the middle of it were all saying virtually the same stuff when we talked to everybody. And I've talked to, I haven't talked to Mark, I haven't spoken to Mark, we've been in touch, and I've talked to pretty much everybody else who's in the book not named or obviously. Um, and it's pretty standard across the board, everyone's feelings and thoughts. And it's, that's been uh, really gratifying to me. Yeah, Because I mean, I, I really didn't write it for, I didn't, I couldn't, if I found myself thinking about how's this going to, you know, I just had to stop. I mean, you just, that's just death if you're wondering about how any specific person, much less fans or any large group of people's going to, receive something. I mean, I knew there would be a million different reactions, and
2: I just had to focus on I'm just writing my story. This is it. Yeah, but uh, Brian Koppelman on the podcast, you were with him, said that you, you make Chris Robinson out to be the worst guy in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd be inclined to agree that the portrayal, did you consider that at all? No. In doing it? No, I mean, that's, that's,
3: I see, I don't see it that way. I, I don't, I make him, I don't, I, I don't think he's the worst guy in the world. I think he's I think he's a mess. I think he's got some real, you know, but that's a guy that for many years I loved with all my heart too, you know. And it's just, but again, that that come that came and went, and then the rest, you know. You still look at the. I've had people say it at some of these events, they're like, I don't even want to hear the records anymore, and I'm like, oh my god, if you do that, then all that's left is the book, you know. Like, fuck, it was all the 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 music is. That's the most important thing. I mean, it's it's a. Uh, I mean, I, I do, I, I, I didn't have a vendetta, but that said, it, it is, it, it's very frustrating to see years and years of, of, a, of a very false narrative being presented, you know? and, that, and even that narrative changes depending on the day or the minute or the mood or whatever, and, and so that, that's a little frustrating, but it, it's really, you know, it, Ed, when Ed died, that's, it was in the aftermath of Ed's death where it just suddenly made perfect sense to write this book. Like, 'Cause Ed died without anybody knowing his story. And I, I can't tell his story and I wish I, I wish somebody could, you know, but that's too late. And I did have a sense of, well shit, I'm not gonna not get mine out, you know. And plus I just think it's a great story. I mean, as much as it's like some of it really sucks, but man, it's fucking awesome. I that's dropped right. out of college and I bought a drum
2: kit and gotten this crazy good band for thirty years and doing all this I mean it's it's fantastic. I don't be the portrayal. I right? I, I don't think you were unfair to him or Branch or really anyone. I'm just acknowledging that no, no, there was a perception that you were. Well, I think
3: I think that, that people—it's you, know, it, you can tell right away what people's almost always subconscious. They don't, but everyone has a sense of expectation before they open the book. If you're a die-hard Crows fan, you're hoping I hope this gig is in there, or this story, or what's really happened this. And and I've I've talked with enough people where I don't think people are aware of what they're expecting, but they know when they're disappointed. You know, they're like the fuck, what is this? Or they're pleasantly surprised or whatever. But for people that aren't so involved in the Black Crows, I think their perspective, and I I did think I want this to be a book that someone who doesn't know a thing about the band can still read and relate to. I mean, because it is a universal story. I I mean, it's basically, it's friendship and loyalty and betrayal and addiction and codependency and love and hate. And it's all of those... When it was happening, I was always aware of it. Like, man, this is just a, this is just a novel. It's a movie. It's just all these elements that have always been the building blocks of all of every great story ever told. It's just in the context of a fucking rock and roll band, you know? And it's... I didn't want to write a book about rock and roll. But it, I, I, I never saw it as, like, we're just a rock band conquering the world. It was, that's, I never had that sort of cliché view of it. It was far more important to me than that is everything. It was my, my whole life, life. You know, and that's the way we everybody was at some of a certain point. So I, I just I think the uh I mean this is the weirdest thing ever, but I've had some I've had people like producer of Squawk Box on CNBC wants me to come on the show to talk about workplace dynamics and I'm like <laughs> 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 you know and like they have an event and I'm gonna they ask me, I don't know that she's like, well we get all these CEOs in a room to talk about these themes and you know I think you that. And I'm like, uh-huh, okay. And she goes, so we'll have the CEO of like Delta Airlines and Chipotle and Kaiser Permanente, and I'm like, and you want me to say what? And she's like, no, there's a this is all universal stuff. Like everybody who's ever worked in any creative field or any really intense where there's a lot of pressure can relate to every story in the book. And I I always felt that way, but then to hear other people say it, it's like, oh yeah, shit, of course, you yeah. know. So I mean, there's a lot more in it, and when I was writing it, I was aware of all those. Those are the things that all led me to it as much as anything about just wanting to get something out of that, the Black Crows. I mean, it's, you know, the Black Crows isn't this thing it did, I, it was me, and it was my friends, and it was the people where, you know, it was very, it's kind of weird to put it into those kind of terms. It, it, it can sound trite when you say it's my
2: whole life, but that's what it was. And it's, it comes out in the book, and that's what it, it's magical to all of us, and that's what made it so excruciating. To read some of the stories in there, um, we're in San Francisco and we spend a lot of time talking about Chris's uh, preoccupation with all things Grateful Dead after a show in '91. And yeah, there's a conflict in the book where you talk about that era of the band, uh, '92 to '96, which is what was most influenced by his preoccupation with the set lists and then he covers for jamming. Yeah, but you also really. Uh, it's not to your chagrin. No, all of, of which was, no, I thought
3: all that was great. I think that it just went too far. I mean, I, I was always good with, I'm not a guy who walks down the middle, and I'm not trying to be the moderate and everything, but I just think that there were very obvious moments where it all clicked and made sense, and everybody could feel it, and we'd be like, oh, man, that's the thing. And then to get the next day, it's say, like, okay, let's go further. It was like, we just got here, and now everyone's comfortable. And the biggest problem with that to me because people say all the time, like that's my favorite period of the band, '97 in Europe, and I'm like, awesome. I mean, you're right. I mean, everyone's right. I'm, you know, I'm not running for office. I'm not trying to. If if you know, because there's gigs that I was miserable the whole gig as a drummer. Every time I ever walked off stage thinking that I was the love child of Ringo and Buddy Rich, everybody said, "Man, you had a rough night, huh?" I And then when I had gigs where I was just fighting the drum kit the whole night, that's when everybody goes never heard you better, you know, so it's like I go into this knowing my perspective is just mine, and and it's so when people love periods of the band or a certain gig or something that I wasn't happy with, I don't say you're wrong, I'm like, great because everyone's, you know and I say the the fans who have all the gigs and listen they know more about it than I do, I don't listen to that shit, I've never gone back and listened to a live show, I I have no interest in, I can't do it with Trigger Hippie, I don't do it with any if I play a session, I don't go back and, I just, it's, I'm there, and when it's over, it's someone, that's for everyone else to do. I just don't like, because I'll just tear myself apart. I'll listen to every little thing and be like, oh, what was I thinking there? I mean, the, the turnaround on, on the album version of Sting Me to go back to the second verse, I still hate it, like with all of my life. It's just this little, <laughs> and it's the most pedestrian, in the studio I knew, I was like, oh, I should do something now, just play, oh, ah, you know, it's one of those. And that's what's on the record. And I'll never hear that and not go, God
1: damn, I hate that.
3: (laughs) So why would I go back and listen to gigs? You know what I mean? It's just like, it's pretty brutal. But um, no, I was totally down with playing covers. I was totally down with playing new songs we just wrote that day. Totally down with jamming, all of it. There's just a point when we're moving away from the strengths of the band. When you do that to where everyone is at their best and in their not necessarily comfort zone, but in their strong zone. You know what I mean, like that's, that was what was going on in 92, 93, 94, 95, by some of 95 and then into 96, 97, it just got way too far out where, and it was still good. I'm not saying we weren't a great band, but it wasn't everybody doing what they did best. And it's like, you're playing not to our strengths, but to one person's view that no one else wanted to go with what we did. And it's a testament to everyone else on that stage that those gigs are what they are. But I think that we missed a great chance to really solidify us doing what we were. The Black Crows were something by 92. I thought we were the best rock band in the world. And I didn't see any reason to start bringing in elements that that were that were not within the framework of what we had built up and who everybody was. You know, why not work to your strengths? and. And we were great at writing new songs and playing them. And we were great at learning codes. And we were great at jamming. But within that, the idea that um, and, and it was and it wasn't just that's a that was a general vibe, that was the band's vibe. We were all trying to accommodate what Chris did. And so, you know, obviously he's a catalyst in those early years. I mean, he was he there's no no one's saying he wasn't the quarterback of the team, but it's like, yeah, but it's a team. And so if you wanna start to do things that everyone else is not happy with, and everyone else is going, "Hang on, man, that's that, that's not us." And his answer is always, "So, yeah. you know, that that's the thing that, and again, the gig can be great that night, but the erosion of the internal confidence we have in each other—that that's what that does. That's when the Chinese water torture starts, and the the things that connect you, that are, you can't, you don't even have words for. Those are the things that start to erode, and that's when a band starts losing itself, and that's what that. And that's explored in
2: depth. It helped us understand a lot of that, because like I said, there's a lot of head sculptures through the years, and yeah. the false narratives that were put out there, and, and now it's almost like we finally get the story. Well, I, and it was always, and those things were discussed too, like there was, I think that,
3: you know, in the early 90s, you know, I think there was a, there was a great opportunity for the band to be, for I, well, I mean, in simplest terms, like the guys from the grunge bands, just to, that came in after us, they had no problem saying, "Like, I feel a little weird about this," you know. They 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 didn't have a problem admitting their vulnerabilities and their insecurities and they're in over their head with where their careers were, and that was nothing we ever allowed ourselves to do or say. It was like, no, well, we gotta always act like we're completely in control and we're doing everything we want. It's not how it felt ever. It was like. Why can't we be as confused as anybody else? This is weird. We didn't bargain for all this shit. And so, but then that's, you know, on one hand, by ignoring all that, we turned ourselves into a great band. But then you've got to constantly adapt. And, you know, with every year, every record, every period of time, we were just never able to stop. And there was no such thing as a conversation in that band where, how do you feel? What are you doing? How, what did, where do you feel different in the last six months? Like that never happened. Ever. I mean I didn't want to do it I mean it's not like I'm not that's everybody we were just not those people and so I I know that I see younger bands now and you meet them and they they have like monthly you know scheduled once a month they turn their phones off and really dig into each other and I'm like wow oh that would have been
4: great or horrible for both but
3: that was never going to happen in the fucking Black Rose so I can tell you that
2: without a chance we're going to open it up to the questions from folks in a minute. I just wanted to get uh, directly from you. You mentioned 2010 is another high point of the group, but uh-huh. you virtually ignore the last um, eight-ish years, the last third of the band's yeah.
3: career. But... Well, the narrative is established. I mean, as a story, it's... Um, I wrote more, but then in reading back and figuring out how we wanted to edit it, it just... it. A lot of it was the names have changed and that's it. You just, just put different people in. The, the vibe, it, it was the same, but just in certain ways, just darker and worse. I mean, it really was. There was a level of. of darker and worse? Oh, yeah, yeah. The 2008 <laughs> and 9, and 10 were the angriest internal. It was a nightmare. I mean, I like you say that. It just was the. Yeah. It, and. Um, but, you know, in a weird way, everybody was just used to it. You know what I mean? It's like, to step out of it, you know, in my life right now, if I had one conversation with anybody, like a normal day in 2009, I mean, there'd be fists flying, you know, be like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Or, or I'd just walk away. And at the time, it just got so, it was just normal. And, that, and it's, it's, but again, in the, in the grand scheme of the story of the band, that, that just, nothing was done in those years that ever I mean, to me, the ultimate, the essence of the band, and a big part of that was once when Mark and Ed left the second time. I mean, and that's not a knock on, on Luther or Adam, who are great dudes and I love playing with them. You know, I really did. And I still am, I, I feel great about everyone personally that joined the band. Um, and I do think, too, hell, I love playing with Paul Stacey. He's one of my favorite guitar players. But in, in 2010, that band on Good Nights was just killing it you know, we would walk off stage and even then would be like, well, man, fuck, that was something. So, again, it was just what it was. But I didn't think of it. After a certain point in the book, it's pretty exhausting. You know what I mean? And I'm, I was looking for high points and I was like, well, there really aren't any. I don't have any really exciting, happy things to say about that period. They're just, well, I mean, I could talk about getting home and going to my kids' preschool. Those were pretty fucking great days. But, you know, I, I don't think that really fit the narrative of the
2: book, generally speaking. Do you think if? If you hadn't written this book, you would have gotten a phone call for the summer? Oh God, no. Not a chance. No. no. So the book had nothing
3: to do with it. Yeah. Not not in the least. No, I mean Chris wasn't gonna call I mean look, if Chris had said in 2014 to Rich, let's do it 50-50, Rich would have said, okay. I mean I I mean I you know, I I never thought differently. You know, Chris tried to take his piece too, and so that's when he was like, you know. But that was the and I and I don't even but I don't even begrudge her, I don't care. Like I I genuinely, I don't care either, moving forward <laughs> has nothing to do with me. It's a shit show, and it's going to be, and that. but they have every right to do it, and they have to do it, and so go. I, I, I've i said this so many times, if you're in your 50s and you can make a living playing music, then God bless you. And if people want to go to those shows and agree, relive Shake Your Money Maker, that's awesome. That's still my album, too. I mean, I, I love when people love the Black Rose music. But as far as... The essence of the Black Crows, to me, officially, and beyond any shadow of a doubt, died when it died. And there was never a chance that I wanted to go back and reconstitute, if they, and put it, I mean, and because the next question is, well, if they had called? They wouldn't have. They're not about to split money. And secondly, I, have, I would have had no interest, especially in a tour, the way they're doing this, and with the people they're doing it with. I mean, it's just, across the board, it's a, when I say it's a shit show, I mean it in every possible level. Not, those guys not that at all it's like no this is bad and it's sad and it's a shit, shitty thing for the legacy of a once yeah. great band it hurts. and again but i can hold two thoughts in my head at the same time they have every right to do it and if this is what they need to do then we're going to do it i mean if it's going to make people because there are going to be young people who are going to maybe go listen to shake your mind bigger that's great that's the whole point is that the music is going to be around forever and i think that they could have done things a lot differently over the years but it's not who they are. It's, it's, like, it's like asking, you know, it's, 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 we were talking, you know, someone said something about the, what do you say? There's no, like I said, there's no stopping, pump the brakes, what are we doing, why are we doing it, how do we want to do this better? That doesn't happen. It did, on the first two albums. You know, and we, we, had, we had great people around us and we listened to them. And then that stopped and it never came back. And so they're just where they are, and it's and it's it's. Not, I'm not angry about it. It's sad. It's all the book is sad. The story's sad. But that said, I'm thrilled that it all happened. I'm filled with gratitude about my life. And this is just a thing that could have been one thing, and it was still pretty great. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah, You're still
2: right. yeah, exactly. All right, let's open it up to some fans. Q and A. Anyone want to ask Steve anything? You do this. Go ahead. Steve, Huge fan. Thank you. Sixty shows. Thank you. Um, and there was a point somewhere in the 2000s. I don't know the
3: dates very well, but um, you start to do a drum solo. Yeah, not my choice. I was
1: wondering. Was never mind. idea was that? and How did you
3: feel about it? I hated every second of it. <laughs> I never wanted to do a drum solo. It got really bad when they would all leave the stage. I was like, oh, and that was just the fuck with me because everybody knew I was like. I would just go to like, 16 bars done and done. It was always nice. Chris,
4: yeah, go longer, go
3: longer. And I would say like, he's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I'm fine. I can sit here and bullshit all day long. No one cares. No, I'm not that kind of drummer. No one's here to see me take a drum solo. Maybe they are, and that's cool. But the vast majority of people, I saw it the same way I saw a, a lot of the covers we did. No one came to see the Black Crows play that song. Not one person would be happier with East Carolina Blues then sometimes Salvation. And if that person's here, someone needs to punch him in the face. (laughs) There's only one person that wants to hear that song tonight, and he's the singer, and that's why we're playing it. So the drum solo to me was just like that. It's like, no no one's buying a ticket. My whole Gorman goes off tonight. (laughs) I sure as hell didn't want to. You know, and again, it's fine. It's part of it, and we're trying things, but it hit a point where I realized, way ahead of everybody else, like, I'm just not that interested in this. So why am I subjecting an audience to it? And, you know, like, so much of the band was these concurrent realities and themes. But, like, I was on the record of saying, like, I I thought the recorded version of Golden Hill's, I love that. I love the lyric. It was the last authentic lyric Chris ever wrote. And I couldn't believe he wrote it down. I was like, that's actually, you're writing a real song about yourself. And I thought the recorded version was really cool for a B-side. I was like, that's a great lost track that someone finds later. And he's like, no, it's going on the record. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he wants to play it live. And I'm like, oh, man, nobody. No, this is just piss break central. Like, you're just, (laughs) I mean, I guess on one hand that's nice, but why don't we play something people want to hear? You know, and it's not, it's not, I I do say in the book, I never had a, I, I, I was never, obsessed with sales figures and you know, we all made a good living. I was not counting tickets or album sales. I was, and I'm not trying to give myself a gold star, but I just looked at the room and I was like, man, it's pretty obvious what our fans want from us. Why are we not giving them that? Why are we forcing them down all these rabbit holes? And then some nights we bring it back around and then it's a euphoric encore, then some nights not. Like, Like, come on, man, it's not that difficult. So... A lot of that kind of stuff. It was just like, but that was always that was the band from '93 on. It was always varying threads of great and weird and confusing, even on the inside.
4: Yes, sir. So I never got, I haven't. I can't wait to read the book. I never got the jump from Southern Harmony to Amorica uh-huh. until the Last Crows came out. Album came out, and suddenly they were like all these. Early versions, it's like more like it got recorded twice. Yeah. Like, first time, and then everything got beaten up and recorded the second time. Stuff like Feather, which is amazing. Never even made that. Yeah. What, just like, how do you go about recording though? Like, it's expensive. You no. Know? Like, going
3: through and doing the whole thing twice. Yeah, back then. Twice and, and well, we made a record that Chris produced, and it just wasn't that. It just, no one liked it. The label didn't like it. No one else in the band liked it. I mean, and it's mine. As an additional bunch of tracks, if you're a fan, you know, when I'm a fan of a band, I'll listen, to the, I'll listen to them talking in the studio, you just want everything. But if you were going to put a third album out following Southern Harmony and it was going to be tall, that was not going to be a good move, is how everyone felt. And even Chris had to admit that eventually. Um, and so, but there was also a thing where he, he had a real reticence to, he always wanted records to be new songs, meaning, we'd go on tour for a year and a half and we'd write all these great songs, and then we'd get off the road and he'd say, no, we need all new songs for the record. He always had this, which no band, that doesn't make sense. Like I was always a proponent of, and I wasn't alone in this, you just take a day off and go record a track. I mean, that's where Led Zeppelin II came from. That's where all the Stones albums, all the bands we love, they don't block off six months and go make a record. They just do it, you do it piecemeal. When you have enough songs you dig, that's the next album. And that has a natural, healthy flow and so the development, you don't lose, you don't confuse your fans that way. And I think there was a lot of songs between Southern Army and *America* that were a wonderful bridge that were just lost along the way. And then it happened again, and it, it happened all the time. There was always tons of material that was just left behind,
2: as, uh, as B said. The head-scratching moments. So. Plenty of those. The other side of that coin, that's a great point. It's great in the book. He explains that period of time, you often fail effort. Um, you do it again. And it the second album and you the out. Uh it was the for in the context of having just
3: pull you know, like there's a there's a lot of getting ourselves up out of the ditch at the last possible minute. That was the greatest example of it ever. I mean the band that the the Black Crows in February of, of ninety seven, when we finished the European tour, was just completely dead and broken and, and I mean, down for the count. And then a month and a half later, we get back together and go record this record. It was supposed to be demos and we turned up, we thought it was an album once we recorded it. That was the most staggering, where did this come from moment we ever had. And I think those tracks still hold up. I mean, I think that stuff's great. And it's the songwriting too. Again, suddenly those lyrics were really, they were real about Chris's life. He, he tended to go, uh, he got more and more removed from, from Writing about himself, like we had a song called "Bewildered." And, um, for the third album, he's like, "I just it bums me out to sing it." And I'm like, "Well, then he shouldn't have fucking written it. Cause it's great." <laughs> Sorry, it's sad for you, but you wrote it and it's great, so let's uh, go. <laughs> um, but and I don't, I haven't heard a lyric from him. And I don't, I've, not, I've missed a lot clearly, but I think by the time but uh, band was the last real sense of, uh, in hindsight, to me. Where he was really writing from his heart, and and I think that it speaks for itself. Those songs are fantastic, and he enriched together, just like bringing songs into the room, saying, "We've got an arrangement done, and here's the lyrics, and here's a melody." And that was the last time they ever did that for real. I think that uh, it's a good book.
2: Thanks for the book, man. Thank that you. A lot of work. And- and so, you know, for me, I hear the tension of the friendship, actually. It's heartbreaking, really. It's the tension. Yeah, it's, there's
3: no question. Well, that's, that's 100% what it was, yeah. I mean, to start off with. And, I and I mean, to my, a, a fault of mine, looking back, with all the best intentions, is if anybody joined the band, I was just, like, God, there on my team. Like, you know, I I, I brought, dropped every wall. Like, no, if you're here, you're here. Let's go. Like, I took everything like that. Um, those tensions and the, the friendship thing is really... And, and by the way, every member of the Black Crows has stories about me being the biggest prick they ever met. That's all true. I mean, I you know, you don't remember when you say something that you think's funny and someone else gets their feelings hurt. Especially when they don't tell you. But, you know, two years after the fact, well, that time you said this, and I'd be like, what? You know, like, there's a lot of those moments, right? I mean, and like my, 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 one, right, Steve? I mean, was, you're
2: growing up together.
3: Yeah, and I I I yeah. I a lot of my uh, trash talk and having the last word, I mean, I have five older brothers. That's just natural for me. I came up in that. And in my mind, it was always it was never declarations of war. It was always, oh, I'll spar- we're sparring? Oh, great. Let's go. Other people didn't see it like that. They they could start it, but then if it got to a point, then it was like a real this is a real problem or a fight. And then, of course, we never discussed it. And got past it. and just Everything just sat there forever. Um, but the problem's you know, no one in that band ever looked at me and was like, I can't believe, you know, I can't believe what drummer's doing. This. I'm Steve, you know, Chris isn't the singer in the Black Pros. That's my its the guy I used to loan money to. He was my best friend. Yeah. And and Johnny, you know, that's that's my dude. And we did all these things together outside the band that, that really solidified us, and then he would have a weird day. And I, you don't look at it like that it was never why is why is my guitar player an asshole? It was like, why is Rich, what's wrong with you? It's just you know, in my mindset, it was always us against the world. And it's like, for real. Like, that that really is... And any band you have... You know, bands don't have to be best friends. But you have to respect each other. I mean, I know plenty of things about a lot of bands that have been around a lot longer than the Black Crows, And those fucking guys hate each other's guts. But they respect each other. And they recognize the importance of their place and, and what they all give. And that... But those lines were just totally crossed all the time. And so... Yeah, it was never, I mean, it can be annoying and it's like the Amorica, I talk about the Amorica cover, which I thought was ridiculous and still do. Um, I, I, that's a decision that, like, why is the singer of the band doing this? But, but I didn't go home and lose sleep over it. But when someone betrays your confidence or betrays your trust or, you know, that, then it's personal and that has nothing to do with the band. That's just people shit, you know. The, the rich Jimmy Page thing... Which is the most? You know that that's got nothing to do. The, the The absurdity of that is it's a people story. Who would look at the guy that just gave us our career back and say no? That that's that story to me. I, I we would have never made a record with Jimmy Page. He's not is He wasn't going to do that. He wanted to, but for a million reasons, it probably wouldn't have worked out. Or even if it had, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. It's not a question of. What did we miss? Like, did the sword come out of Excalibur from Paige one last time? That's not the point. <laughs> it's, this guy just gave us our life back, and he's offering to help more, and the answer is yes, thank you. That's, that's the answer. Thank
1: you for bringing that to life. Now it makes yeah. you know, sense to me. I ended up with 2nd little Shoreline ticket. That would have been a great oh, show.
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs> you and me both.
4: I was there and I was screaming every night That was fucking great
1: and I often wonder why that didn't come Because yeah. we kind of knew Jim Page hurt his back Yeah, and something else yeah. must have yeah. happened
3: For that to just be dropped Well, he was, you know, I, and the, thing, the, the other thing too Again, just thought it's about people He was more than willing to continue in tremendous pain and I, you know, we didn't realize how bad he was until he had a day where he felt better, and that's when it was like, oh my god, he's, this is really bad, because suddenly he had that. He had one day after this guy worked on him in LA where he was just like, oh, and you could see the relief. I mean, he immediately looked five years younger, yeah. and it was like, dude, I, you know, shit, this is bad news, whatever. And I don't even know exactly what the problem was. It's a disc of so I don't know if it's upper or lower or whatever.
1: We all
3: have that. Yeah, oh, trust me. And so. Um, but I know that, you know, again, it went from... But I also don't know what was happening before that, if he was already a little... You know, he really... And, and I'm not throwing more dirt in Rich's face, but but he was really had fun playing off with Chris. And Rich didn't perform. You know, Rich doesn't perform, ever. He's on stage, he's in his own head. He doesn't really give a lot, performance-wise. And he never... You know, Jimmy would come over, and he would just look at him and... And I'd be like, Rich, smile back. We're playing in my time of dying. Smile. But it just didn't happen. And so, you know, I'm like, well, who knows? What did you mean? But I don't know. But all I know is that, you know, at that point in time, the, I said that the biggest pulling ourselves out of the ditch for the Black Crows was banned. But, but the Jimmy Page thing was, I mean, in the fall of 99, I mean, honestly, there was nothing record labels wouldn't even answer Pete's call and then we played six gigs with Jimmy and we had an offer from every label in the world. The next summer was cool though just because we were, we were grooving for That's the only difference. I mean, you can never get that initial excitement back. Those those LA shows were... The last night at The Greek was, that really was like the ultimate, just had a mind-blowing yeah. experience. And fucking, you know, uh, Richie Hayward was there and, and Mike Mills from RM was there and I was just like <laughs> this is fucking great. That's uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, no, that was good. That next summer, those were we were grooving that. Yeah. Going to be bringing Trigger Happy out okay. here? Yeah, sometime this year. Probably not till the fall. We're just uh, we're happy to be east of Mississippi for a while.
4: That Jimmy Page and the Black Crows, that the live the live album, that is probably that and Live at Those are two of the best records. I can't believe I can get a speed ticket. Listening to the, the Greek theater album. That that album you just put that in and crank it and drive yeah. it. it's unbelievable the thunder that came out of that record. It's, it's such a great, great live record. Good. I was curious when you guys there's a point in the book where you talk about how how Rich kind of you guys are having faiths on making set lists or Chris is making the set list. You can tell the energy's going down. Rich does a set list and it just goes through the roof. Right. But you're moving forward through the years. Was was it ever any, was there any, any more who contributing set list wise? Was everybody just kind of content to let one or the other? Or did it... Well, no one's content. It was just, <laughs> you know, at, at a certain point, you're,
3: it's, you're talking about you're a it wall. It. It's just, it's, uh, you know, there was, uh, it's so funny too because in the, I was always amazed at, at for a, a the narrative of this band being presented, and Chris's vision is to just be this band that can go anywhere at any time. If we walked out the set list, anybody that's seen a bunch of shows, very, very rarely did we ever deviate from it. Right. And I mean, like, there would be an obvious vibe in the room, and then you'd be playing, and you're, I'm just looking, i like, oh, here comes fuck, you know, so. Last place that loves lives or something and I'll be like, Oh But you know
4: it was It was like no No that's on the list, that's what we're doing. We just yeah. do some of these people I'm sure in the room too would do like a whole If you guys did six nights at the film Yeah. And so many nights the set list would change radically. Yeah, right. Which was great to have that ability it made the show so much more fun. Sure. What are we gonna hear tonight? Yeah. But you would always wonder at what point In the show, after just rock out hearing something, that something really strange would come on. Yeah. Well, you know, well,
3: in in the moment, at the time, you know, for a long time, it was always everything. Everybody got angry about every little thing, and at some point, you know, at least for me, I did realize, like, well, this is just what it is. I mean, it's not. I mean, Chris didn't wake up and think, "How am I going to fucking piss off students today?" (laughs) Actually, that's not true. (laughs) But not every day. There were times when he did. Just like I did about him, I'd wake up and think, "I know how I can really get under his skin today, and this will be fun." I mean, that's, that's, that's again, that's normal. That just happens around, yeah, but but it was just a. Um, I think there was. I think if you admit what you're great at to him, that was some sort of a surrender, or a then there's pressure, you know. It's, stay, stay ambiguous, and then nobody can pin you down. And I think that's about, that's 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 his view on life. You know, the end of the Black Crows and, and everything he does, it all suffer from that to me. But that's not suffering to him, he thinks that's what it is. So it's a very different thing. I When I first met Chris, we were talking about basketball and he said his favorite player ever was Quentin Daly. And if Google Quentin Daly, I should have walked away that right then. Wait, what? The guy from the Bulls is in prison for rape? That's your favorite player ever? phew, man, he was great. And then I told him I, I love Magic Johnson. He goes, oh, why? I'm like, oh, I don't know. He's great, it's a point guard of all time. But I mean, it really is, like I said, it's not, it wasn't by design. But when you're young, you do think everything's like, come on, you know, everybody thought everybody else would one day wake up and just start making sense. They thought I would, yeah, everybody in the band, there was things I was doing, I'm sure. I don't know what they are, but. Now Steve will come around one of these days. You know, you spend all these years waiting for everyone to get into your headspace, and then one day he realize like, the only thing I can control is me, and I'm still want to be here, but I just got to try to figure out my own head. and Just see what happens. That those Fillmore yeah.
4: runs were awesome. Yeah, I, yeah, to, I got it. I, I, I want to to that, great shows, man. Because I, I've been there since
1: 1991. You guys, I just saw you. There. I know that
3: seen you 1000 times. <laughs> Look, I've never told this story publicly. The night before the Warfield, my cousin and I, Jeffrey, who later was the Dancing Crow, uh, but he was on the road with well. night. We went out to see the A's play the Orioles and got rip-roaring drunk on stadium beer, as you do, and we were waiting at the bar to come back, and we're just out of our minds, and I'm like, man, i got to take a leak because he had me too. And we're looking around, and it's bad, and we're really stupid drunk. And we walked to the very end of the platform and just peed into a trash can, and I'm standing there just like... Oh my God! And I just hear this. there's okay. are just two Oakland cops, and they're standing right next to us.
1: And he goes, "No, no, go ahead, finish." <laughs> <laughs> and,
3: and we finished. And just I mean, just picture that: two guys peeing in the trash can. It's so ridiculous. And he goes, "So why wouldn't why wouldn't we arrest you right now?" And he said some of that effect, and I was like man, I just, and Jeffrey goes, man, he's in a band, of am playing tomorrow, the Black Crows, I'm like, dude, I'm like, that's the last thing I to say, and I was like, no, no, I'm not in a band, and he goes, which is it, and I was like, I'm in a band, he goes, what band, I said, the Black Crows, he goes, oh, okay, all right, this is your one, get on the train, literally, and we, and I got on the train, and I was like, oh, I can't, anyway, that's the Warfield story I
1: have, so back to no the Gilmore, but to have you guys come and play that first run at the Fillmore for me was like Yeah. I was a Kevin. I mean I'm surrounded by family literally.
3: That in two thousand five that one in 2005? Yeah. Yeah, that was incredible.
1: It's that, a that was a huge musical family. Yeah. You know, faces
3: that Oh, I remember like, very, very well scenes. like that vibe. That was yeah. that's one of those things. It was obvious right there, like the whole week. We did have a sh- the, the last night, um like I remember one of those mm-hmm. nights. I went around the corner of that Starbucks, and there's a girl, a woman, um, from the East named Denise, I just remember, you know, and, and she walked up and said, hey, can I buy your coffee for you? And I said, sure. And, and she was like, and she took it, and I'd seen her at a bunch of shows, and she goes, thanks so much for doing this. And I was like, well, yeah. And she's like, no, really, this is, I don't know if you guys are aware, but this week is what everybody's been waiting for, for, you know, she spelled it out I said no I do feel that and I remember like going back to the gig just like man this is amazing that we have this chance like this is actually happening again and I, this isn't in the book I think it's not in there I wrote it but you know and again I'm just saying this to point out it's just could can never get away from it. the last show of that run um, we did an encore and then left and then nobody would leave and so we went back and did another encore and nobody would leave and we went to the dressing room right downstairs and the lights came up and nobody left and we're still sitting there like man and we and so we we're like let's go do another one and chris is like no i'm not no i'm not doing it and, was, and we're all in like, the whole band and pete and amy everyone's like dude just go give one more and and uh and we said let's let's go play sometime salvation if we play that right now the roof will literally blow off the floor And he was like, he just took his shoes off. He was, no, I'm not letting them fuck tell me what to do. And it was like, but it was also, but I did realize, like, oh, he just—he literally can't help this. Like, it's not—that's not him being an asshole. That's a guy who's just—it's just a mess, you know. And it's like, motherfucker, it's just that simple. It's right there. Because if we had done that, we played it. I think the first or second night, and this was the very last night. We hadn't done a lot of. And if we had gone out with that vibe right then and played that one song. That was the only song anyone suggested. Everybody goes, that's the one. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And I mean even Ed is like,
1: oh man, that's the one about
3: you know, we all like And it just couldn't happen. Just couldn't let it ever just be okay, you know. And it's and again, that's just it's sad. It's just it's just those moments. And I don't mean to take away from the great week you already have, but it's just that's the kind of thing where it was you know, to me, after all this time, I mean, it was mind-boggling to me. It lasted half as long as it did. I remember that morning song from the uh, the one that was in the DVD. The, 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 build a, the, the breakdown was like 36 minutes long. But like that same night, I remember it, when it was really going and going. Like Chris looking back at me, and we were we were both just laughing, like "Holy shit, when is this going to go?" You know, so we did, so I, I mean, again, we, we had all those moments, too. I mean, it was, just, it was just the whole shooting match at all
2: times. You almost didn't make it back for the 05 I saw, actually, after, I could say I saw a show that you didn't play Jones at. What was that like, uh, negotiating for you to come back? It was kind of what you never thought about. Um, well, that was, um, it was, it was, it was
3: no big deal. Yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't want to. Get, I mean, I was like, I'm not going to do it. I just didn't. I didn't want to. I mean, I I thought that that was similar to what's going on right now. I just saw it as they don't know what else to do, and it didn't feel genuine. And the reason I thought that was because it was Pete who called, not either one of them. And Pete and I are still close. And I said, Pete, this is the fact that you're making this call, and he's like, and he goes, I told them don't call it. Like they'll fuck it up. And I'm like, well, if they're going to fuck it up, then they're going to fuck it up. You know, it's just not cool. But then the more time went on, and I, I this is all in the book, but I mean, Johnny was actually the one who really put it in my head. He's like, man, you better be real honest with yourself. Like, if there's a side of you that's going to be bummed if, if, if you don't go back, you've got to at least acknowledge it. And so that was a definite, my mind was telling me one thing. Like, I know this, I, I know this movie, I know how it ends. And I was right, and I did know how it was going to end. But I didn't, but I did want to see if, but I still had this thing like, well, oh, maybe we can do it right this time. Really wanted that to be the case, but then when they went out and were playing shows with a drummer, I just thought it was fucking great. I mean, nothing against that guy. I just because I could, I knew, I knew more than anybody what that experience was going to be like for everyone on that stage. Because I had said I'll come back, and then they were like, "No, no, we're good. We got someone. You know, they're playing their game and all that." And I, I didn't hold out to play a game. I really didn't. It was I was very honestly just late to coming around to admitting to myself that I wanted to do it. And then they were like, "No, we're good." And so it was. It was. Uh, they weren't good. No, no. I, I, <laughs> I and I knew that was going to be the case. And I, I did. I'm not going to act like I didn't have it. Love that little month of for You just sitting there like, "Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty cool, isn't it, guys?" Yeah, <laughs>
4: and
3: it's all about you. Um. But you know, but when I did go back, I didn't think twice. I mean, I went back and was like, I'm here. Like it's,
2: it's, this is it. If we're doing it, let's fucking do it. You know. Captured Blade in the Battle a second time in you know, 05, 06, and it's furious. Yeah, no, I, by the, that fall of 05 was fucking crazy.
3: We, we played the, the, time tower, time. We, we did the Tower on 5-I think that's the first time we played Fearless, I remember that being like The only uh, really, I had two things that were really emotional to write, and the ending, was that, and I don't mean the whole epilogue, but the very ending, like that, I, and it's like a bad movie scene, but I literally, I was, I was struck, I was, just started writing and I was really blocked, and I find it took me a couple of weeks to realize, I don't know how it's going to end, and I was like, I gotta know, I gotta know the ending before I can write to it, like I needed to set that goal, and I, I mean, it sounds such a, like I make it up, I just popped awake at like three in the morning, and I just, like saw it, the whole thing about the headstone and all that. And I just got out of bed and I sat in the chair and I opened my laptop and I typed that thing out just like that. And then I I was like, I think that's it. Okay. And then I went back to sleep and I got up in the morning and I read it and I just bawled my eyes out. I mean, I just, wow. And that was really surprising. But I knew that was it. I was like, oh, that's what I'm trying to say. That's what this whole thing is. Was
1: there a thing where a bunch of your tour bus drivers all died or committed suicide or something? No one did. Oh, just, okay, I yeah. thought it was like a like a spine. No, no, one one killed himself in an especially horrific. That's rating. that's the part I remember. Yeah, that's especially horrific. But I remember going. Was yeah. that like the theme of your turbocharger? No. Telling all these stories about that person and Yeah. That he,
3: head, uh, so. he cut his own head off with a
1: saw. That's exactly what with, I remember. With a band, like an electric that, saw. Yeah. insane. Yeah. That's that's a true story. That's why I didn't mention that part. Well, story. you know, people are wondering. He was a he was a driver on the chicken Maker. A guy named Don Register. So of course his nickname was Cash,
3: and, uh, and a really flamboyant character, and just a funny guy, you know. But then we had, we had a well, any band that tours, the bus drivers were all shit house crazy in the best way usually, and then you get a few who are actually really dark and struggling. But we had a guy named Cowboy in the in on Southern Harmony, and he had been a uh, he he spent the Vietnam War riding choppers into hot zones and pulling out casualties. And so he was, bus driving to him was reliving that. He was getting his boys from A to B every night. Like it was his mission. And if there was a problem with that, I mean, he he was like at war every night, it took a while for us to pick up on that, you know, but there's a lot of honor in how he approached that and a lot of sadness and a lot of, you know, and there's, there's just so many, it's funny. I mean, I haven't thought about this, but every driver has just got these, they've got their own amazing lives and stories and they're just surviving in that world for way longer than the bands. You know, those are all the guys who you know. And Don, we had a bunch of drivers on Sugar Money Record until we got to Don. Like every tour was a different driver. And but you know, you know, you think like, oh, you've got us now. Now you got a real band, and they're looking at us like, nah, you'll be gone next year. You know, they, they've all been doing it for years and years. You know, but the yeah, the bus drivers. We had a guy and. Lions tour, we had a couple of them, a guy named Hoot and Angie, they were an old married couple. And she sat up with it. He was Ernest Tubbs drummer and bus driver for years. This old guy, Hoot, and uh, he was the best. We were driving across Montana, like a whole, we went from like somewhere in the Dakotas all the way to Seattle. So it's like two days on the bus, and I remember watching a, a Family Feud marathon on the Game Show Network on DirecTV. Richard Dawson, 70s, Family Feud, we're just stone laughing for 12 straight hours. And uh, and he said, and, and Angie was driving, and Hoot came back, and he pulled out a crock pot, and he goes, I'm gonna make some chili. And we're all saying, Oh, that's great. He's putting, all, he's got the, the cube, he'd already bought all the supplies, and he's putting it all in there, and he goes, Well, we'll have good, good chili in about six hours, boys. This will be a real dinner. We won't have to pull over, and we're just all like, This is great. And Andy Hess was playing bass with us at the time, and he came walking out of the back, and he goes, Oh, you making chili? And he goes, I sure am. He goes, what kind of beans do you use? And who goes, I didn't say I was making f-ing stew. I said I was making chili. <laughs> I was just so like, wait, what? You know, just like, you go, you don't put beans in chili. Yeah, if you want beans, you have beans. And it was just this thing. And it was like, it was so odd and off and hilarious and perfect in the middle of nowhere in Montana. We just thought, and again, you just laugh for two hours. Like, what the hell is this guy doing Anyway, yeah, there's a whole book about bus rider, bus bus driver stories somewhere. You letters. mentioned
1: there were two points of writing the book
3: that were emotional. What was the other one? Oh, uh, Sven Flamanow, went at the end of, in the spring of two thousand, that chapter was impossible to write. And I think I'd never, because he and I never really talked about it. We never went through. Like he felt the face of the earth when he left, and. You know, that's a guy that I had moved to Atlanta. That he was in my first band. You know, Sven was the guy I moved to Atlanta, to start first band with. And he had already gone through so much in the early nineties with his first. You know, with the band after I left Marry my Hope and he was in a band called Needle, and they were all messed up. And when he came back to the pros, he had just kind of got shit together. And then within a few years, he was off the rails again, and it was terrible to see. And then when he unwound and left the band, like we didn't, no one heard from him years. I mean, he literally just went off the grid. And so when I came back to the band in 05, I knew he was back. But I hadn't talked to him or heard from him. I hadn't seen him in five years. And I got back that first, like five years in a month, you know, because he left on April 1st, 2000. And so it was like May of 2005. And I got back to Atlanta, and the first time I saw him, you know, it was just, and right away he looked healthy, you could tell. I'm like, oh, he looks great. And, and he was so happy I was back. I mean, he, more than anybody, had been going through a month of shows with another drummer that the, everyone's riding hard and and having trouble with. And so he was so happy. But but beyond that, I, I just said like that first day, I was like, man, are you okay? And he goes, yeah, I am. I was like, I'm so happy for you. And he goes, yeah, thanks. And we never talked about it. We just, because it was, he's good and I'm good and let's just go forward. And so he's the only person I called before it came out to say, hey, I need to talk to you about this thing I just wrote. Because he's a very private person and I I don't know how much of that story anybody else has heard, but it, you know, it was the most heartbreaking thing in real time that happened to me when I was in the band. And the way it, the way that, I, and that's a totally personal thing because he flames out with Clint, and those are my two guys that I first started playing music with. And then I saw Clint the last night. I was in town. Like the timing of all that was so significant in in my life. That was like such a huge few days in to me, and so writing it, like the more I got into it, I kept having to stop, I'm just like, oh my God, it, like I just had never, that was the only thing I hadn't actually processed, I guess. And so when I finished writing that chapter, um, I did like finish, like there was a thing, I sat there, and then I went upstairs, and I i read it to my wife, I just said, hey, just listen to this, and I read it, and I couldn't read it, I just started, I kept crying, because it was just so, I just had never admitted how sad I was at the time, it was just like this, buried thing. Everything else I'd already dealt with and already faced and talked about and thought about and really mulled over. But that was for whatever reason I just never did. And so that was that at the very end were the two things that I that kind of killed right. But everything else was just this is what it was. And I called Sven and said, you know, or I texted him, I said, hey I need to talk, you know, I wrote a book. He's like, oh yeah, I know and and then uh, he was actually going to be in Nashville, like, the next week, so we got together. He was great. He goes, I don't care what you're writing. It's all true. He goes, if you write something about me, I did it. It's on me. Don't worry about it. And I totally trust you. And I was so relieved because I really, it was after the point where it was there was no going back. And if he had said, I really don't want it in the book, I probably would have taken it out. He's the only, that's the only thing I would have done that for. But, uh, but he was like, no, man, go ahead. It's fine. And I gave him an advance copy. I'm like, kind of blasted through and he goes, yeah, it's about what it was. I was like,
4: Phew. yeah.
2: The most emotional part of the book for me as a fan um, was the, the end of The Golden Air, the band that was an impromptu intervention backstage with Mark. He, like, loved Mr. Mm-hmm. Spaceman or something. And, uh, yeah. and it was interesting because you spent a lot of time portraying the personalities of each band member, mm-hmm. and then they all sort of revealed themselves in that crisis. Yeah. It was excruciating to read um, the way that, that happened for Mark. Um, but in that, you, you really see how much of a stand-up dude Johnny Colt is. And you make the statement that sticks yep. with me in the book that, quote, Johnny Colt won black Black Yeah, What do you mean by that? He's the only
3: guy who left with... Uh or he's a fur I mean I, I felt great when I left in 2001 but it was like that that was only because I'd seen him do it I mean I you know he he spent the summer of 96 the summer of 97 sober in that band which is just in it's unimaginable and just kept to himself and he wasn't being given an ounce of respect about what he was trying to do for himself I, I did I certainly didn't give him any shit but you know after after the recording of Three Snakes, when that was just taken from him, and then getting just piled on for a whole his final year, like his thing was, it you know it was so obvious to him like I got to get out of here, but I'm going to get my shit together first. You know, I'm watching him walk that walk. I mean, that was like a guy trying to leave a gang, just getting your ass kicked in order to get to the door. You know, for real. Um, it was it was incredible, and I. You know, when then when he did quit, like I, I I was so stunned even though I knew it was coming. I mean I had no doubt in my mind it was gonna happen. I still couldn't believe it happened. And that was such a wake up call to me. It just like well, I gotta get my shit together now. But, but you he just a quick
2: week,
3: right? You any- I, I I no, I mean we not at that moment. We had talked well in ninety five I said there, there's a whole thing about the the breakdown of the money and I said, I'm leaving you know and Johnny said, Well if you go I'll go and he told me he backed me on that. And then when, when we made Three Snakes and then Rich decided he was going to play bass and Chris said, yeah, that's cool. Like, I, that's, you know, like I look now, like that's, a, again, that whole story is about me not saying, no, stop. And and it wasn't like I would stab Johnny in the back, you know, that's that's his fight. That's not my fight. The thing, even beyond that, the thing that I'm most disappointed in myself is that I it wasn't about Johnny's feelings. That was the band. That was the essence of what made that band great was us all playing together. I mean, Johnny's not my favorite bass player. You know, Rich is not my favorite guitar player. Chris is hardly my favorite singer. But together, that's what mattered, you know what I mean? I am no one's favorite drummer on, my own, on our own. Like, you know, you, know, you can pick apart everybody's playing or singing or whatever. But when everybody was together in a room, that, there was a thing that would happen. That's, that was the Black gross to me. That's how I always saw it. And so not drawing a line in the sand for three snakes yeah, that's what I let down the black crows more than John. I let down my version of what made that man special.
0: That choice was basically the beginning end. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, that was it.
3: That was, that was the end. That was the beginning of the end, or the end of the beginning.
0: say, what an honor and a privilege it was to have uh, Steve Gorman sit down and rap about his career and his book and the tortured genius codependence and what might have been that was the Black Crows. Now, uh, yeah, I'm not going to touch on this whole Brothers Reunion thing. Uh, I'm going to go golden rule with it. If you listen to the interview, it's clear how I feel, and uh, I'm not going to check it out. But I don't begrudge anyone who wants to go hear uh, the brothers play the songs with whatever band they're putting together. But uh, I can put a period at the end of the sentence, much like Steve. No Steve, no crows for me. And this has been the only episode out of 27 of the Up for Life podcast where I've played exclusively the music of the guest. I did that in tribute, out of total respect, and just the fact that I'm not sure Steve's going to really be into any of the other kind of stuff that I would throw down. And, you know, I wanted to keep it focused and keep it crows in case uh, any folks were just checking this out uh, as crows fans and not uh, necessarily Fans or listeners to this show. So, any new listeners out there and any listeners in general, thank you for tuning in to the Upful Life podcast. Please feel free to send feedback to b.gets, B.Getz at UpfulLife.com, U P F U L L I F E. That's gets at UpfulLife.com even better you could rate and or review the podcast on itunes tell a friend share it on social whatever it is Uh, we appreciate you and uh, yeah shout out to the stricklands lauren and tucker who won the tickets to vi jam fest and we're gonna wrap things up here with one more jam from the black crows you guessed it for the vibe junkie jam of the week, it's tough call. You know, I played a bunch of my tunes already, special versions. Right now, you're hearing one of my favorite songs, "Wiser Time," from uh, Essen, Germany, in November of '96. Uh, so yeah, really touched on the glory days, as we talked about in the interview, the '90s the Mark Ford, Johnny Colt, Eddie Harsh era, Southern Harmony through Three Snakes in the further tour. And hopefully we'll get to have Steve come back on the show and I can really get into the nitty and gritty with him. But I think he did a great job of doing that. And if you are curious, as I mentioned, there are a number of great Steve Gorman interviews on podcasts of all different kinds. The search function is your friend. So for the Vibe Junkie Jam of the week, I'm going to play Descending, found on the album Amorica, which really uh, is my favorite Crows album. Uh, I love Southern Harmony with all my heart, and I also love Three Snakes and One Charm. I mean, I love Tall and Band, the albums that never came out from that era. but, But Amorica was the record that I got as a kid, uh, that just took me to the next level, and, and I've been a fan of the Crows since I played Jealous Again at my Bar Mitzvah, uh, that's a true story, so, yeah, Amorica was my shit, this Remains my shit, one of my all-time favorite records, any band, any genre. So we're going to wrap it up with the album version. Because, you know, I played live music this whole pod. All these different great live uh, Crows shows. So we're going to wrap it up with Studio Descending. Uh, Shout out to my man, J.A. And all my peeps in the Black Crows, the taller squad. Uh, You know, thank you for keeping the flame alive, even though this band is fucking embarrassing sometimes. But as I stated earlier, the music does the talking loudest, longest, proudest, and most profoundly. So, love y'all. Up for Life Podcast, episode 27. I'm your host, B. Getz. Holler at your boy, descending, Amorica. We'll see you next time.
1: I